Thank you for joining us on the Entrepreneur Dad Podcast, where we talk to entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and overall just people that are working their butt off to make a great living for themselves. In this, what we do is we examine their journey, their ups, their downs, their transitions, and also how to remain great spouses and loving parents while managing a full daily schedule. Thank you so much, and I hope you get tons of value out of your time with us. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to have Cliff Sims with us today. So Cliff has been on numerous TV shows from Stephen Colbert to The View to every news channel there is talking about his book. And and I'm so excited to have him on here today. We're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about business. We're going to talk about sports. We're going to talk about his wife. We're going to talk about all the things that he's probably never discussed before on some of these things. And so I'm super excited about that. So Cliff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So... Let's talk just a little bit background. So um, a lot of people see you know, Cliff Sims wrote the book, used to you know work at the White House, all that kind of stuff. That and that stuff's really really cool. But like, where are you from? Yeah, I well, grew up son of a Baptist minister. Amen. Yeah, and uh, lived in Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, all over the Southeast was kind of where we uh, we stuck uh, stuck around for the first, I guess. Well, gosh, my whole life, but right. really growing up and, uh, you know, going from different churches and that kind of thing and yeah. grew up in my dream growing up was playing the NBA. As you can see, I'm built like an NBA basketball player. <laughs> <That's awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to go and play in college, play yeah. at Delta State University in, in Mississippi. Awesome. And when I was there, uh, you know, really, I, I'd grown up going there because my grandparents lived there. Mm-hmm. And so I knew what uh, what the Delta of Mississippi was right. all about, and it's a different different world for sure. But uh, when I got there, I decided I wanted to transfer, and um, my family was living in Crestview, Florida at the time, right. and um, visited a buddy of mine who was playing at a junior college in South Alabama, an enterprise, and okay. I went and visited and, and liked it and called my dad up and said, hey, I think I'm going to transfer to this little town called Enterprise, That's Alabama. So and he said, uh, it was kind of silence on the phone. I said, was that okay with you? And he said, I was going to call you today and tell you that our family is moving to Enterprise, Alabama. No freaking way. He had gotten called to be the executive pastor of a church in Enterprise. And uh, so that's how our family kind of <laughs> reunited there in Enterprise. They still live there. And so it's just Is that not the Lord? Story. Oh, gosh. Well, and I look back at that that time in my life where, frankly, I didn't really care what the Lord's plan was for right. my life. But he did. Yeah. Already, even in that moment, he was already ordering my steps, wow. and so ended up there and won a state championship, and uh, started thinking about where I was going to go play next. And my little brother had um, started playing the drums for kids at church on Wednesday nights. He's four years younger than me, so he was, you know, fifteen at the time, right. sixteen at the time, something like that. And they asked me if I would sing because uh, I'd grown up singing in youth choir and church and things like if that. You we went had, to a Baptist church. You sang in the youth choir course, on Sunday night. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so I said, sure, I'll do that. I'd never done anything in music before and led worship for those kids on Wednesday nights. And uh, so then we we I was still looking where I was going to go play basketball next. Right. And the guys in the band kind of sat me down, and we did, you know, the only logical thing you do when you have a new band is you, well, you have no choice but to drop out of school. Right, for sure. play music for a living. That's what you have to do. And so that's what we did. Yeah. And for the next five years, I mean, we toured all over the country, had songs on MTV and the radio and all kinds of wild stuff. I mean, it's just like a weird period of my, my life. So you dropped out of school, got finished playing basketball, you dropped out of school and went and did this tour thing. Yeah, right? went and played music for the next, like, five years. Did that's you ever finish college? Well, so I, I met a girl 
Metagram. which is how many times is that how many times have we talked about that on this, <laughs> this show <laughs> and uh, we got married and I just didn't want to spend 250 days a year on the road right uh, and you know it was a tough time in the music industry too because mm. of file sharing and the oh, economics the Napster of the, stuff the economics of the music industry was it was just collapsing yeah, yeah, at that point in sure. time so it's just there's a huge there still is but certainly there was a big disparity between you know the tippy top of the music industry and the working class musicians out there. So you were kind of that that pardon the term but that bastard era like in between like you know the big business and then the front end of the Napster file sharing mm-hmm. social media stuff. So you weren't getting weren't totally into that to like these days. Yeah. I mean you can do free stuff all the time and sure. virtually free. Yeah. And maybe make it and get a following but like at this point you can't do that yeah. so you're well what was happening it was the change between uh, so so there was this golden era of the music industry where the the CD was Absolutely. a cash cow because sure. you love that one song you heard on the radio but you ain't got no choice but no. to buy these other 15 and it's 12, on this CD 12, 15 bucks. and it's yes and so i mean what my gosh what a business model for right. them and then Napster and and other file sharing services kind of made that collapse and so there was this big you know 10 or 15 year period uh, where uh, that was going away and there was nothing to replace it yet. Now you're starting to get, you know, they're starting to monetize Spotify and right, other streaming right, services. Right, right. But even now, the music industry has changed to the point where the the music used to be the moneymaker. Now you have to have the music as the engine that drives other revenue streams. For sure. Touring, merchandising, publishing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, around. Uh, and so we were just in a in the middle of all of that. Right. And so it was a tough, tough time to be in the music industry. And so um, I decided to, to go back to, to school. Well, I guess before that, a buddy of mine who's my Sunday school teacher in okay. Enterprise yep. decided he's going to run for the state house in Alabama. And he said, you know, I've never done anything in politics. I know you had never done anything in politics, but would you help me run my campaign? So how old were you at this time? I would have been 20, see, 2009, so I've been 25. Okay, so high school... Baseball and basketball player. Yes. Now, many people know you're a really, really good baseball player from Worldwood Street. <laughs> so, uh, baseball, basketball player, travel around because your dad's a Baptist minister, go to JUCO, play there, mm-hmm. some success there, and then you join a band, mm-hmm. and then you drop out of school, join a band for five years, you meet this girl. So, you have zero poly- political. No, never done anything. I mean, because here's the never thing. I was in. Baptist Church nine months before I was born. My mom's 70. No doubt. And she still plays organ in the Baptist Church today. Love the Baptist Church. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. So you were not in the political realm at all. And so this guy comes and asks you about helping and doing what? Yeah, we had we had done some kind of side businesses together. I always had kind of that okay. entrepreneurial streak even okay. in, in, you know, growing up. I mean, first thing I did in, in business was probably I sold, you know, if you fold the paper a certain way, you can make ninja stars Absolutely. out of it. When yep. I was in elementary school, I sold those. Nice. When I got in middle school, I was the uh, helper to the wood shop teacher. Okay. And I started making these little wooden Nike checks that if you drilled a hole in it, they could be either a keychain or you could put them on your backpack. Bro. So I started selling those. You know, so I like, scrap wood. Scrap wood, yeah, and Nike probably still the cease and desist order was probably on the exactly. way when I shut that business yeah. down. But uh, yeah, so I've always had a, an entrepreneurial streak, and so I'd done some kind of side businesses with this guy, and so we knew each other, and we knew we were, we're both kind of just like we're going to figure it out kind of guys. For sure. And so when he launched his campaign, asked me if I'd help, so I managed his campaign, and it was a big year in Alabama politics, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. 
because Republicans were swept into the power for the first time since Reconstruction, so 136 wow. years. And so all of the major players who were swept into power, I kind of got to know them as a part of that campaign cycle. And so uh, really got bit by the political bug, and I think a lot of the, the kind of competitive aspects right. of sports and things Absolutely. like that that I liked really latched on to that. And so I wanted to go back to school and finish my degree right. went to Alabama. And okay. uh, while I was there, launched a, a blog just so that I could – blog about things going on in Montgomery, kind of behind-the-scenes political stuff, and it was called Yellowhammer Politics. And it wasn't supposed to be a business. It was just me kind of blogging about Just talking about stuff that you're your opinions. And it just exploded. And so it turned into a full-blown news outlet. It went from nothing to millions of unique visitors a month. And, um, you know, by the time I I sold the company to go and work in the White House, you know, it had millions of unique visitors, 30 radio stations around the state and all kinds of stuff. So so the entrepreneur, one of the questions I had was about the entrepreneurial aspect. Because, I mean... When you look at like how you worked in the White House, wrote a book, all that stuff, you don't see immediate like entrepreneurial things, but when you dig deep in like the Yellowhammer stuff. So tell, tell me about, because there's a lot of people out there that, that want to own their own business and that want to, and there's a lot of people out there, Cliff, that sadly enough just want to be in the public eye. They want to be famous or whatever. But like you blogging, how did it go from you just writing about political stuff to actually making money? Like mm-hmm. when did you start making money? On the Yellowhammer thing. Well, I think, first of all, to to back up a little bit before that, I think it's important to to know that everybody's not wired to be an entrepreneur. And that's okay. A hundred percent. That's okay. I totally agree with you. We're the only people on earth who would would rather work 80 hours a week uh, to control our own destiny than work 40 hours a week. For somebody else, and you may not even make as much money. No doubt, <laughs> doing it absolutely but, for sure. Um, and so, you know, you're either wide like that or, or you're not, and it's okay either way. But you know, the the it started off kind of think about the music industry model where the blog was going to be a means to an end. It was going to help me get consulting work because I'm dialed into what's going on, and you know, people are reading my stuff. Oh, maybe I would like to get him to do some communications consulting work for you know, political associations or whatever it may be. And so you went into it thinking to yourself, "I could leverage this to make money," mm-hmm. but it was not from a media outlet. It right. was for a for consulting. Yes. I'm going to do this so that people could come hire me to help them. Yes, as this is how I would gain some level of notoriety in that space, that the people who would be able to hire me to do those kind of things. So one of the one, number one things that people say is become an expert in your field. Mm-hmm. If you want to own your own business and make money or whatever, become an expert in your own field. Mm-hmm. And you were creating that expertise. Well, no doubt. And I tell you, one of the best ways that you can become an expert is by teaching. So that seems counterintuitive because how would you no, teach before so, you know what it is? Well, absolutely. in order to be able to teach, you got to learn so learn. much. And... Um, so that was kind of what I was doing is every issue that I want to write about, I had to learn about it to be able to write about it. And so, uh, so I I think there was a, a time where, um, I kind of flipped the switch and said, okay, let's see what it would look like to have ads on the site and who would pay to add, uh, to, to, to advertise. Well, I think it's, um, in the media world, which is very difficult right now, I mean, yeah, jump out of the music industry, yeah. which was a mess, to the media business, which is a mess, and kind of digital Absolutely. stuff turning it on its head as well. Well, you can either have global scale, you're the New York Times, and every English-speaking person on the planet is your audience, or sure. you go really, really deep in a niche yeah. to where uh, I could show you, because my email blast and the analytics that come along with that stuff, you can, I can show you the governor reads my email every morning. 
the Speaker of the House reads my email every morning. This right. many members of Congress and this many members of the State House and you know whatever read my email. And so if you are an entity that wants to speak to those people, it's a small audience, but if you want to reach them, they will pay a premium for that. Yeah. And I got very quickly, that was pretty clear. And so that's kind of how I turned it on. And over time, developing other you know, products from, you know, the radio network, which came a little bit later right. on and, you know, the, the different advertising options and doing events. So just looking for different revenue streams to right. be able to capitalize over this captive audience that I've been able to create that is a high dollar audience because we're talking the, the major CEOs of corporations, sure. the major politicians, et cetera. And so that's kind of how it morphed into a, a business over time. How, but how long though, when you start doing this, because I mean, it sounds like you did this in college, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're just doing this in college. So here's the here's the thing that I hear people talk about all the time. So I'm only on my own business for about six years now. But you hear people all the time. I heard I heard a quote the other day. It says, you know, no one wants to get rich slow. No one wants to. Right. Everybody wants to make money and make it make it make it uh, fast. And that's just not the it's just not the way it is. So tell me the timeline from when not from when you sold the business, but like from when you started writing a blog to when you started actually making money to when it was a full-fledged, like, hey, there's a lot of employees and a lot of money going through. What's the timeline on that? I think 2011, late 2011 okay. is when it launched as my blog. Uh, I would say 2013 is when it became a self-sustaining, I make a living doing yellow hammer. So two years yes. of doing work. Grinding. Making no money. Well, that's right. And and so you have to, so I think one of the best ways to become a, if, you're, if your goal is to control your own destiny and, and own your own business, I think one of the best ways to do that is um, have something that makes money that's a solid thing and then grind it out on what you really want to do long term. Right. And that goes against everything you just said about short term, I want to get rich quick right. kind of thing. That's Absolutely. like the exact opposite. Yeah, for sure. But I think that that's the... I mean, look, people can go out there and get a bunch of debt and start a business Man. and whatever. I'm just not for it. Me I mean, neither. it's just not, it's just not yes. you know, I don't do my, my, my personal life that way. No. I don't have any debt, and I don't want to have any debt in my business if there's any way to avoid it. Now, granted, there are times when, you, you know, if you're trying to ramp it up and scale quickly, once yeah. you get something, you think through some of those things. But on the front end, I just have a hard time. Right. I want to prove that, con that concept first. Absolutely. Um, so that's what I did. And, you know, I had some, for, fortunately, we had some money saved up. My wife was a, is a hard worker. Yeah. And so she, there was a time when we first got married where she was really sacrificed working, yeah. you know, two jobs at a time. I was doing, you know, whatever. I worked at, you know, when I lived in Nashville at one point, we were doing the band thing. We had to have a side job at the mall to be able yeah. to make the, you know, well, you do what you have to do in those, those time periods. And I think you really, it's an important kind of the underlying principle here is, um, you know, everybody, Every overnight success was years in the making. Years in the making. And so whether it's actually, you know, in that space where you become very successful or it's in, you know, hustling on something else that makes this thing possible. And so that's, you know, you're, you're right. People don't think about that. But again, if you're wired that way, if you're wired to where you have to control your own destiny, you really want to, to be right. fulfilled in your work, then you'll do what it takes to, to do that. See, I didn't think I was wired that way. Like you and I grew up very similar. Sounds like that that middle class month to month type thought process mm -hmm. where both my parents are educators. Your dad's in the ministry, very, very similar, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah. From Alabama, lived in Alabama, you've lived all around the South. And so I thought I wanted to be a, I went to college. The only reason I went to college was to play football. 
and to go coach. That's what my dad did. That's what I wanted to do. And so there's no question about what I wanted to do. But when I felt a calling, and I say a calling, and you, you've felt this before, a pull, a tug, a whatever by the Lord to get out of what you're doing, when you do that, it is um, something you can't escape. Mm-hmm. And so when I got out of it, I didn't have anything to do. Like I literally stopped working and didn't have a job lined up. Ended up working, like you said, I worked at a church making half of what I was making. And that's when Milford started. And that's what, like you said, yeah. I went two years. Now we made a little money, but we didn't make any for real money. Mm-hmm. So I went two years of doing both. Yeah. My wife walked in like a year and a half into it. She goes, hey, look, you're doing the coaching hours thing again. And I realized that. And so it sounds like a really, really similar pass along that. So you let's, talk, let's go back. You, you mentioned Megan before. Let's talk about Megan, how you guys met, y'all's relationship, yeah. what she does, just, just well, who she is. I, I, I definitely want to talk about her because she's about one of my favorite topics. Yeah. Uh, but I think, the again, the principle that you are kind of touching on here is very important that um, – our similar background, mm-hmm. I think if you were like me, then you had never met a CEO of anything. Never. You no. never met a... Ball coaches. Know, no question. And so I think what, what for everyone out there, it's like you are only... Um, you only know the, the, the universe you've been exposed to. That's it. And so the importance of doing things like listening to podcasts that yeah, are from sure. experts, and it, because you're suddenly... You know, I would have never met a Thomas Cox, but... If I listen to your podcast, then I'm getting exposed to what it's like to be a small business owner and right. made to think through some of these things. And so that kind of personal development aspect of yeah. uh, is so, so important and, and getting exposed to universes that you otherwise would not have had a chance to, to touch. And I didn't do that until, I mean, I think about my parents, like my parents are very smart people, you know, Absolutely. Uh, go to college, went yeah. to college and, and, and our, and my dad's a, a businessman of our church. And so he, right. you know, gets a lot of those things, but, uh, but very kind of fundamental things about the handling of money that they'd never been exposed to. And then you start getting around successful people and you see the way that successful people handle their money, the way they use their money. And yeah. so, you know, I, I just say that because anybody who aspires to be a small business owner or anything they small, aspire to be in life will get exposed to that universe and, and search out those opportunities. And, the, and thank God for the internet now, there's so many opportunities to listen to podcasts right. like this and others. And so I just wanted to mention that. But, you know, Megan uh, is... Uh, Really, just an extraordinary person in in that her faith is so strong, and her she challenges me. You know, we're all as men. Right. The Bible says we're supposed to be the leader of our households right. and and lead spiritually in our household. And when you have a wife like Megan, uh, that's hard because right. she's so strong in her faith, and yeah. it's hard sometimes not for that to get turned upside down. Oh, no doubt. And she's yeah. pulling me, for sure. like, are you in the Bible right yeah. now? What have you been doing right, right now? Absolutely. So no. that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of uh, person that she is, and just incredibly supportive of all these kind of twists and turns yeah. that we've taken, and just Church. trusting in, in God's plan, and in uh, you know, my vision for where we're going as a family, right. not just as a business. And so... Um, She's great. She's the uh, communication director for Lifeline Children's Services, the okay. adoption agency here in Birmingham now. Gotcha. Uh, and so we, uh, we're in the process of adopting personally right now. That's what she, we were just talking about. Yeah. So you guys just got back from Columbia. Tell us about that trip. Yeah, we went down to a, an orphanage there yeah. that, uh, that we're actually adopting out of. 
and uh, my, my wife turned 30 uh, this year, and that was kind of her one ask. She wanted to That's be cool. able to take her family down to Columbia and see this orphanage that that we're going to adopt out of because uh, adoption is such a it's a family thing, yeah. and uh, you know it's one of those things that growing up, uh, similar to. I would say foreign missions. Okay. That I would hear somebody come to my church once a year and talk about it, and I would say to myself, "Thank God, whoever that is is called to that." Now, I'm not called to that, but I'm going to support them Amen. with a little bit. Of Give them money. And, that's God. right. That's right. Pray for you. That's right. <laughs> and it's another thing where until you only know the universe you've been exposed to, and until uh, here in Birmingham we go to the church of Brook Hills, and that's part of the culture that's of a Brook great Hills uh, is both foreign missions and a heart for. Um, for widows and orphans. Yeah. And so when I start meeting people who are really just no different than I yeah. am, and they are going out into the foreign mission field, or they are adopting children, or they're fostering children, and then suddenly thinking, well, they're really not, I know them, they're normal people. They're not superheroes. Right. And maybe that's something that, that we could do too. And if, realize if you really you know, read what the Bible has to say about those things, these are not options. These are, we're called. I mean, Absolutely. you think about especially missions, you know, it's pretty clear, you right. know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say if we call, if you're called. If and it's like, called. no, 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 I'm calling you. Go, go therefore yeah. and do Absolutely. it. And so, um, and that, that looks different for everybody. It doesn't, not everybody goes and lives in the mission field long term. Not everybody adopts a child, but we are all called to minister in those right. ways and do those things. And so, um, you know that that is something we've been walking through, and my wife has struggled some with infertility. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think the, the 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 really the moment that really kind of well, we had, we had talked about adoption, yeah. but the, if my wife was being very honest and vulnerable, and I think she wouldn't mind me sharing this as part of our story, is there's that nagging question in the back of your mind, or there can be, is will I love my adopted For child sure. the way that I would love a biological child? Right. And my wife, uh, I was working in the White House at the time, and I couldn't go, but she went to Ethiopia on a mission trip that included a, went into working in an orphanage there, gotcha. and she saw those kids. Yeah. And even those kids who she knows she's not, are not going to be part of her family, immediately just like the love and wanted to help these children in anything that you can do. And it broke her heart. God broke her heart. And, and she, after that trip, said, you know what, I have no question that I'm going to love our adopted awesome. child the way that I would love any biological child. And so... Um, so then we kind of really jumped head first right. into the uh, to the adoption process, and so when she turned thirty this year, that was her one ask: go to Columbia, take her family down there, and see the orphanage. and And so it was a great experience to be able to work with those kids, and a really cool setup down there. Probably about a hundred kids okay. uh, between the ages of zero and and fifteen, and um, just doing extraordinary work down yeah. there. Uh, and 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 I'm learning too that a lot of these children, it's um, it's not just psychologically difficult right. when they go through this. It's actually physiologically there are problems. So like the way that your brain is wired, 95% of brain development happens in the first five years of life. Yep. If you insert a traumatic event into those first five years of life, what happens physiologically, some of those, you know, this is oversimplification, but the brain doesn't connect in Synapses some ways. And all yes. Yeah. And so uh, our, the child we are adopting will be between the zero, ages of zero and three. Right. But, but it's gonna, there are tough things that come along yeah. with that uh, because children, are, you don't think about it when you're a parent, but um, when they're that young, it's totally normal for you to have, them, you to have your child next to you all the time, skin to skin contact, you know, just interacting one on one, things like that. Them holding their arms up yeah. all the time. And if you're an orphan, even those kids, even this great setup in Columbia, right. 
there are only so many workers there and there are a hundred kids and when you go in there to volunteer you can sense their need for yeah. for personal one-on-one -on -one interaction because they never get it right and so uh, that that messes with kids brains and so anyway there's a lot we're learning about yeah. a lot of things that go along with that but we're in the middle of the process and probably I would say fourth quarter of this year first quarter of next year That's we'll awesome. have a little Colombian baby in our house now do you know the the child that you guys will do you know them currently mm -hmm. or is it just no. a process no and in fact I, I didn't work with the zero to three year olds at the orphanage while we were down yeah. there because I felt like I would have been looking at every one of them like are you going to be my baby <laughs> or then what if you get mad yeah. with the child and you're like wait a second that, that kid was a jerk like when I was down one. there <laughs> Kid was so a I'm jerk. just gonna try. Gonna, yeah, like if the two-year-old would yeah, be exactly, a jerk. Exactly. But I'm just gonna trust God with with that That's one. But awesome. I didn't. Megan worked with him so, but I just I couldn't do it. I stayed with the middle school kids. That's so good. <laughs> so, so you guys are looking at adoption. So let's go back to the Yellowhammer thing. So you're doing the Yellowhammer thing, and you sold the company. You had built this company. I say you. You had an awesome team. It sounds like you had mm -hmm. a team of people built this company. How much more political? How, how much more were you invested in the political stuff other than that first little thing that you did with your buddy? How much more invested in the political realm were you other than that time and just doing the Yellowhammer? Well, I mean, those were the two main right. things. But but working at Yellowhammer, I mean, it's certainly a difference between owning a news outlet and then being a political operative. For sure. But but. Yellowhammer's main content vertical was politics. was politics. And so I was deeply, deeply ingrained in every aspect of the political scene. I right. mean, all of the major players, I had their cell phone numbers. Yeah, for sure. On a regular basis, on the record or off the record or, you know, whatever. And so... So in some ways, you were more... You had more experience than a guy that had been running multiple campaigns for people. Maybe in, in, some, in some ways. In some ways. It definitely was, was applicable experience right. when, you know... 2016 campaign comes around and and Jeff Sessions, uh, who was our senator at the time, said that it should hey, would you consider taking a leave of absence from Yellowhammer to work on the Trump campaign? Um, there was def that wasn't crazy, you know what I mean? It right. was like I, I didn't have maybe the normal experience right. that would go along with that, but it was not out of really outside of from a, I was going to help them with communications, and okay. so that's what I did every that's single what you've day. Been doing. Yeah. yeah, so so you get a call from Jeff Sessions, and then. So who ran your company after that? I mean, so... Yeah, my buddy, B.J. Ellis, right, who who's been on the to, podcast. Yeah, wonderful and, human being, uh, wonderful yeah, family. We grew up together in, yeah. in Florida, uh, okay. playing basketball together. Then when I went to when I signed to play in junior college, I brought B.J. with me, made right. sure they signed him to yeah. come play in junior college. And so we kept in touch, and I'd actually hired him out of coaching in college to come run business development for Yellowhammer. Crazy. And it just goes to show that it's not so much... It, it goes back to the whole principle of hire the person before you hire the job because mm -hmm. obviously BJ on paper was totally not qualified. Sure, yeah. But you trusted him and you knew his personality and you knew that he could pretty much do anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's wise enough, smart get it, enough. He's a get-it-done guy. He's a get-it-done guy. Yeah. And so that just goes to show also that, like me, growing up coaching college football, I had no experience doing this, but we figured I figured it out. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to the whole, you know, Having common sense and confidence is the, two of the most important things in life. So you hire, you hired BJ and said, "Hey, come do this. You're going to go and just work on this campaign, not really knowing where it's going to go." Mm -hmm. So you go and work on this campaign for how long? Did you work on the campaign? It was for? a couple of months. Okay, I mean, it was really toward the end of the 2016 campaign, and really it was um, it was really more 
like I want to go have this experience that I probably uh, never For would sure. again. And so we win or lose, whatever, you know, I'll I, work out a Trump Tower and yeah, you know, absolutely. see what see what happens. And uh, really threw BJ off into the deep end because, yeah. like you said, he'd never never run a company and never, you know, he had really just got his feet under him at Yellowhammer running business development. And so, yeah, that was a tough time for Yellowhammer, but but I think also kind of accelerated that learning curve where he had no cho- choice but yeah. to, to do that. And God knew this whole time that for sure. I was going to end up leaving. And so he needed that right. to be able to come in and, and run Yellowhammer after yeah. I really left, after we won and, you know, got offered a job to work in the White House. It's kind of another one of those things where it's like, when else in life? Is that ever going to happen? How do you turn down an opportunity to work in the West Wing? Right. Uh, I mean, people say when you work in the White House, people don't realize that probably 90 plus percent of the people that work in the White House actually work in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building next to the White House because the West Wing is very, very small. Yeah. And so I was going to be one of the you know 40 or 50 people working in the West Wing right. of the White House. Yeah. The only thing that separates my office from the Oval Office is the Roosevelt Room. Right. You know, it's like I kind of have to take that. That opportunity. One of those things that you have to take. So you, you're working on the campaign. You won the campaign. How did it transition? So you're just I, you're working for uh, you know President Trump. But then, do they come in and say, hey, do you want to be one of his staffer? I mean, what's the what was the process there? How, yeah, how did that work? Yeah. So the the president and I got to know each other during the campaign because uh, in a communications role, one of the main things that I did was I mean, he's like he is all everything's communications to him. He's always thinking communications, yeah. but. One of the main ways that we got to know each other was recording videos for him. That any kind of video that the campaign was putting out, like I was in the room working with him to to produce that that video, and he's obsessive about it. You know, what do the lights look like? What's the camera look like? You know, what's the sound? What's gotcha. the, how we set up the shot? Yeah. Everything. And so we got to know each other through that. And so um, in the transition between winning and being in the White House, I actually came back to Alabama because I wasn't planning to. To go, I didn't know that we were gonna. Yeah, and I was com- gonna come back and run Yellowhammer. And Fire so, BJ. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and a guy named Jason Miller, who was the communications director at the time, you know, basically said, "We really want you to that's come." Awesome. And um, and so I, I accepted. And yeah. uh, so it's just wild. And so part of that is you have to divest yourself of a lot of your your things you own when you go and work in the White House in that That's way. That's right. So I actually sold Yellowhammer. So like being a senator, pretty steep. I didn't realize. Okay, so my buddy is uh, is in politics in Tennessee, and he says, I think when you become a a, a, a senator, you have to sell your company. Is it... What's the problem? Well, the, so the, there are definitely different rules between yeah, executive sure. branch, legislative branch, and state versus federal and right. all these different things. But for us, it was... Uh, m- anything that you own that could conceivably um, could be touched by your government job that you could could influence, you know. So, so for instance, Yellowhammer. If I've got all this inside information because I work in the White House, Absolutely. and I also own a news outlet that's and, political, and I and yes, and so I'm suddenly I'm getting them. You know, special inside information, which drives more traffic to the website, which makes more, which money, makes more money. So you could see it. where it would yeah. be a potential, you know, conflict of so interest. So you had there. to sell your land. So I had to sell it, and you know, it puts you in a tough spot because everybody knows when January twentieth come and the president gets sworn in, this has to be sold. You lose leverage you when you're on a timeline like that, and so I probably sold it at, at, you know, a discount for what it would have been otherwise. But I just I did that feeling like that taking this opportunity was going to open up a whole another another world of right. opportunities that wouldn't have existed otherwise. So you are in the White House. Um, how, okay, so 
I'm not a political guy. I don't know a ton about politics, but here in the last probably six or eight months, and you're going to laugh at this, my wife and I started watching Designated Survivor on Netflix and Madam Secretary. Right. We, I just, I'm, I love it. Okay. It's one of those things yeah. we just, and I'm not a TV watcher. So how similar is the, the day-to-day and the thought process to the, what you see on TV as to what the real life is? Well, so I have to caveat this by saying I don't have, I only have experience in the Trump White House. Right. It's a unique situation. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, normal in the, in For the sure. strictest yeah. sense. Um, but I think that most, you know, television accounts are, are idealized right. versions of, there's some truth to it, but yeah. then, you know, it's drama. It's For sure. And so I think, you know, for me, it was The West Wing. I don't know if you've ever watched The West Wing, okay. but that was a, a TV show that, that I grew up watching and, and, and loving. And, yeah. you know, it's kind of these, they're, they're all, you know, I'm a conservative politically. They were Democrats. They were left-leaning. But then you get to see behind the scenes, you're like, all oh, these are good people trying to do good things. Right. And we just maybe disagree. And so I would say that the real-life version is a little bit more cynical Right. Than, than the Which idealized West Wing version is. Um, you know, Designated Survivor, uh, you know, the whole premise of that show being that, you know, when you go and do the State of the Union address, it's like all the, everybody's in one room. <laughs> so you got to hold one person back just in case something happens here. Right. That's true. That yeah. does actually Absolutely. happen. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the kind of cool national security behind the scenes things that that kind of touches on yeah. are some of the coolest aspects of the job. I it mean, is. like flying on Air Force One and, That's awesome. you know, things like that. So there are some similarities. And they've gotten to the point now where uh, what the... Uh, well, the Oval Office always looks close to the truth. I mean, mm-hmm. you've seen a million pictures of it. What almost every show, every show that I've seen gets wrong is what the actual West Wing looks like. The halls are very narrow. The offices are very small. It's old. It's, it is. It's, it's old. Trump had remodeled some of it in there and, and to kind of update it, which happens once every eight years. For sure. so if you think about the most highly trafficked workspace in the country – only gets renovated once every eight years. Yeah. Imagine what it looked like when we walked in the door. Wow. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's not not great. So the, the TV shows get the way the West Wing looks totally, totally, totally wrong. wrong. And I would say the day-to-day uh, workings of the West Wing, it just depends on what your job is. I mean, this yeah. is the tough thing to capture is there are some people, the vast majority of people that work in the White House, again, they're working at the building right across this little driveway called the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. They watch a lot of things play out on TV the same way that you do. That's you know, because they're not in there. Now, if you're in the little small group that's right around the Oval Office, your life is a lot different because totally you're different. like in the middle of that. And then there's even people that are in the West Wing that may be a step removed from that. Right. Their lives are a lot different from that. So it's it's really tough to kind of capture everyone's experience of what for it's sure. like in there because everybody's job is so dramatically different. And for me, the advantage I had was being a communications person and Trump is always thinking communication. So you're right. in the middle of every Everything. single thing. Yeah. Did you, um, the hours, let's talk about that. Was it, mm-hmm. was it, some, was it crazy hours? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you're, you're in there in the six or at the latest seven o'clock hour, you're out of there at the, you know, in the eight o'clock hour at night, probably like the, you know, pretty, the pretty much every day. And you never know when you're going to have to be, I mean, my family, the first time that my family came to, uh, DC while I was there, uh, actually we were, we were out, we had, went out to dinner with them and I got a phone call and I had to go back to the White House because we were getting ready to launch airstrikes against, uh, in Syria. Oh, wow. And so I kind of had to say, Hey guys, can't really talk about, but you'll see it on the news in, in a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> you <know? gotta> go. <laughs> exactly. uh, did you, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy your time there? Because that's a, 
you can sit there and you can go, man, the great experience was great. Did you enjoy it? From a day-to-day perspective, did you get up in the morning and have fun and look forward to going to work? No, I really didn't. Yeah. And, you know, that's not a function of the working in the White House, which is always going to be high stress. You know, it's For not sure. that. If you'd asked me when I was in the White House, are you stressed? I would have said no. You get conditioned to, you, you just, it becomes normal, even working yeah. in that environment. The thing that I did not enjoy was, um, and this is something I've tried to apply to, to my business now, is I, the workplace environment was not just high stress, it was toxic. Mm. And so there was a real lack of leadership at the staff level. Um, you know, I write a lot about in my book uh, about my time working in the White House. You know, John Kelly, who was the chief of staff at the time, he'd walk around telling people this is the worst blanking job he ever had. Oh, wow. And this place, and you know, if that's your, that's the chief of staff is over here just talking about how much his life sucks. That yeah. sets a pretty it, negative toxic tone, like you said. very toxic. And then there was also the, you know, in the communication space, there was, you know, we brought together some people from various factions. And tried to make a team out of it. Yeah. And, you know, my book is called Team of Vipers. Right. And there's a reason why the book is called Team right. of Vipers. Yeah. And it's because there was a lot of, you know, infighting and backstabbing. And, you know, I'm not just going to point the pink finger at others. I, you know, writing my book, I became consumed by that myself. Yeah. Um, you know, Sean Spicer, who was the press secretary at the time, you know, I helped orchestrate his departure. And then the day come where somebody orchestrated my departure from the way, you know, so it's kind of live by the sword, die by yeah, the sword no kind doubt. of thing. But yeah. Was it a situation where you saw it was the truest example of everyone trying to step on everyone else to get to the next level? No question, no doubt. But it, even deeper than that, it's it's what power and the proximity to power does to your moral compass. Mm. Uh, and, and everyone trying to maintain that access to to power. I mean, I orchestrated my day around, I want to make sure that I'm the one in the room with the president. I'm going to make sure I'm the one that's talking to him about this. And not. And if that means i got to block somebody else or undermine somebody else or stab somebody else, you yeah. know, I'll do what I'll have to do to do it. And, um, you know, Nick Saban came to the White House while I was there because Alabama uh, won the national championship. Yeah. And so we were waiting to go and talk to the president. Uh, with him, and the deputy national security advisor happens to walk by the Roosevelt room and see us in there, and he actually pops his head in and he said, hey, while I've got you, uh, he said, every, you know, there, there are college football coaches that have some success here and there, and, you know, maybe they even win a national championship, right. but then they fall off, and yeah, they, you know, sure. whatever. What is it that you do that has allowed you to have the sustained success year after year after year after year after year? And and Saban, you know, who's a a very soft-spoken guy, which may surprise you if you meet him one-on-one. He doesn't, he's not gregarious. Yeah. He's very kind of reserved. And he said, well, first of all, I don't really know what other people do, so I can't, you know, I don't know how to compare it to what other college coaches are doing. But I will say, when I worked under Bill Belichick in the NFL, Bill Belichick, in his organization, every single person had a clearly defined role, clearly defined responsibilities, mm-hmm. and clearly defined goals. And every single person from the water boy to the quarterback were held accountable for those things held every single day. And he said, I spend every waking hour at, at Alabama holding everyone accountable to those clearly defined roles, responsibilities, and goals. And we kind of laughed because it was the exact opposite of what it was like in the White right. House where, you know, we didn't have clearly defined roles. It was all right. kind of, you know, what is just what can you get yourself in the middle of? Right. There weren't clearly defined goals. There weren't clearly defined responsibilities. And there was no one really holding people accountable to those things that they didn't exist. And so it created this chaotic working environment that was really, it became toxic. And so as now I think about 
at Telegraph Creative, uh, yeah, where I'm at now, you. you know, that's really something that we're working through as we, we, we grow is making sure that everybody has those clearly defined roles, responsibilities, and goals, and that there is somebody there who's holding them accountable to those things, and we hold me accountable too. We're going right. to hold each other accountable and create a really positive place where we can do great work and be fulfilled in what we're doing. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you had as much fun as I did in this interview. We would love to hear your input and who you would like for us to interview on the Entrepreneur Dad podcast. Also, we would love it if you would give us a review and a rating. What that does for us is it helps us so much in our business and so much with the Entrepreneur Dad podcast. If you have any suggestions or would just like to ask a question in general, please email us, thomas at theentrepreneurdad.com. That's thomas at theentrepreneurdad.com. Thank you so much. We look forward to serving you.